get people to watch these testing sessions, including our product managers, including our developers. And I think that's helped us to just distribute understanding across our team rather than, you know, in some kind of summary format that says, you know, we found this. People are witness to it themselves. and It becomes a lot more obvious and part of everyone's intuition instead of a specialized report or, or only a couple people's intuition. That's Jess Brown, the Director of User Experience at Vice Media. Jess has spent the past couple of years building the team that's led the company's efforts on redesigning the entire Vice brand from the ground up, across the web and all its mobile properties. Before joining Vice, Jess had her own fashion startup in San Francisco before meeting the team at Rent the Runway and moved to New York to join them. There, she helped create and deliver a better user experience through a mix of design and product thinking. What Jess is talking about is how Vice does and shares user testing research across the entire company, an activity that never stops as you can never actually know too much about your core users, as we'll soon find out. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano, and today we're speaking with Jess Brown, the Director of User Experience at Vice Media. With a background in computer science, Jess made the switch to design and user experience through her interest of solving human problems through products. While based in San Francisco, working on a fashion startup of her own called Threadflip, she was introduced to the team at Rent the Runway in New York. Jess ended up joining the team there for several years. Today, she's the Director of User Experience at Vice and joins us to share her story how she got into design startups, how she approaches building products through user experience, what it was like completely redesigning the Vice brand from the ground up, and much more. So let's get started. Hey Jess, thanks so much for being on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Super excited to have you on and to get to learn, you know, more about, you know, what you're up to and all the cool things that you're working on today at Vice. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Where are you from and what did you study? Yeah, so I grew up in Palo Alto, the little suburb that nobody should know, but now everyone knows, which is kind of crazy. And from there, I really journeyed very far, went all the way across the street to Stanford, and I studied actually math and CS, which, you know, moved into design from there. But that was what I majored in. That's cool. So where did your interest in design come from in that case? Was it something that was always there or did it develop through school? Well, you know, growing up in the Bay Area, I would say I was kind of steeped in the Bay Area mindset of trying to build something, trying to build something valuable and always kind of had that in the back of my mind. But as I journeyed from school into the job market, I found myself gravitating towards trying to solve human problems. So my first gig was a designer developer hybrid role. And so I was designing things and then building them out on the front end myself and just kind of learned about user testing and started doing more and more of it and realized how passionate I was about understanding people and understanding where they were coming from and how products could solve some of their problems. That's very interesting. And so what was that transition like for you? Were there any particular challenges you needed to overcome? Yeah, I mean, there was the initial challenge of getting a job that was, you know, at least a little bit creative. And that was 
something that just basically on my own time and throughout college had taken a bunch of art courses. But putting together that first portfolio that said enough and showed enough skill was probably the first challenge. And then from there, trial by fire, working in small organizations that didn't necessarily have a lot of design resources or a lot of other designers to learn from. I spent a lot of time reading books and reading blogs and following people and absorbed information that way. So all of that was was a challenge, but was exciting and like motivating in a way. And so fast forward through those different experiences, you ended up joining Rent the Runway, first as a senior user experience designer and later as the director of product design. So before we get too far into it, can you tell us a little bit more about what Rent the Runway is all about and how you created the opportunity to join the team there? Yeah, so Rent the Runway's initial concept was basically helping women to dress up for an occasion. So shifting people's mindsets around what it meant to get dressed up for a big event like a wedding or a gala or a party from I need to go out and buy a dress to why don't I think about renting a dress and acknowledge that I really am only going to wear this item one time. And then that moment has passed and I'm kind of going to be done with it. And now they've expanded even into a way to experiment and rotate fashion in and out of your closet with a subscription. So they've gone more in the direction of this like everyday rotated closet as well. But that wasn't where it was when I joined in 2013. But thinking about what brought me there, I had been working with a number of smaller startups in the Bay Area, including a company that I helped to co-found called Threadflip, which was about helping women buy and sell clothing from each other. So kind of like the concept was like a sexier eBay, you know, eBay 2.0 with some social features and the ability to find people and follow them. And as I started pursuing fashion specifically in the Bay Area, I had a lot of friends tell me, you know, oh, well, well, if you're really into fashion, you should probably be in New York because that's much more of a fashion capital <laughs> versus San Francisco. And I, I said, no, 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 you know, like the startups here, I like the environment here. And then I was introduced to the founders of Rent the Runway and started having a conversation with them about what they were doing and their team and just saw it as such an exciting opportunity that I moved from SF to New York to join their team. That's a great story. And so even though this wasn't that long ago, just, you know, 2013, it was really the start of what would become the sharing economy as people weren't super used to Airbnb or get around or other things like that. So what were some of the biggest challenges around getting people to understand what the company was trying to do at that time? I think it still continues to be a challenge. But at that moment, it was like, why would I stay in somebody else's house? Why would I wear a dress that I don't own? Why would I, you know, borrow a car that I don't own either? So just getting through that mental barrier of like, this is how I consume this thing. And this is what it means to have this experience was really challenging. And I think unique to Rent the Runway was kind of that twofold questions of like, well, how do I know that this will look right on me that there's some stakes around these events, you know, they're probably a big deal in someone's life. And so even if they believe in that value proposition making sense to them of like, oh, I only wear this one time, getting over the fear of it not working out was, you know, a whole other layer to it. That's very interesting and obviously completely valid, you know, points given that Rent the Runway was in the fashion industry. And so how did you approach solving for that fear or concern? Was it through the product or some other tactic? The biggest thing that helped people overcome it was this reviews feature. 
So being able to see photos of other women wearing the dresses, being able to see their words about, you know, this is my normal sizing and this is how this dress fit or this is how this dress looked. And knowing that you were seeing photos that weren't, you know, beautifully lit and photographed on a model, but seeing real women wearing the dress and talk about their experience with it. I think that was one of the biggest features that helped women overcome their their fear around it. And then we evolved that feature a lot while I was there. We brought reviews into a new mobile app. So, you know, everyone's taking photos on their camera. Why not make it that much easier to review dresses in an app after you've rented it where we know your photo lives already? So that helped increase the volume of photos and reviews that we were getting which obviously like increases other people's confidence that they can go through the process. Wow, it's really cool to hear how, you know, that type of simple feature, real photos, genuine reviews were able to build so much trust across the platform. And so, how did that type of experimentation from a design or user experience perspective really influence product? Was it a natural evolution for you to change roles or was it more of a multidisciplinary approach to creating, you know, the entire experience end to end through the product and vice versa? That's so interesting that Still, I think the terminology around these roles is ever evolving. Like UX wasn't a known discipline when I started working. And now it's a little more understood. I think product design is now sort of broadly inclusive of UX and inclusive of visual design and sort of represents this end to end arc of designing a thing. It's not fully product. It's not day to day management of engineers or engineering team or necessarily like focus on business requirements. But obviously, UX includes a hard look at that. But I think that step forward into more of a team manager role was more of an evolution. Like I had found myself unhappy about certain things, namely like the team was challenged in finding a seat at the table. We had a lot of PM voices and we had a lot of strategic thinkers and design wasn't necessarily a big part of that strategy and road mapping level. And so I really wanted to improve this. I wanted to help the design team find our way there, you know, keep it positive. So I spent a lot of time gathering input from the team as a whole and organizing the team and organizing meetings and really pushing the discussion towards how do we make this better? Like what are our inroads? What value do we bring specifically to this conversation? And why would people want us to be in it? So in choosing to do this, there was a shift in in my mindset and the broader team's mindset of like going from being frustrated with certain things to actually influencing some of the changes that made design more on even footing with product or engineering in terms of decision making. Absolutely. That's really interesting. And and maybe just diving in there a bit. If you had to give some advice to somebody else who's also trying to gather, you know, those voices that you mentioned and and gather that feedback and try to get a seat at the table, how should they approach it? and, And what would be some of your advice to share in terms of making that happen in other organizations today? That's a great question. Just the the regularity of the conversation and things like setting an agenda. You know, if you have designers who are creative people, they want to express their ideas, they want to push things forward. And if they feel like they're not influencing enough, it can be a really frustrating design environment. So I would encourage people to just have those conversations, like give people the space to vent, but then also make sure that that conversation turns into, okay, what's actionable? Like, where can we take this? You know, what can you do this week or this month? Who do you need to talk to? I just think it's easy to get into a place of like not being clear about what concrete steps need to happen and then nothing can really change. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's really valuable insight. And I would agree with a lot of the points you just made there. So thanks a lot for sharing that. And so over the course of your experience at Rent the Runway and during that part of your career, what were some of the biggest lessons that you were able to take from that? One is like, you you probably don't know the user. <laughs> like It was so interesting at Rent the Runway. We I think I was involved in at least 200 conversations with users, probably more, and really making sense of the broader demographic of women who were using Rent the Runway as a service. It's not all women in New York, and it's not all women in major metro areas. And really wrapping our head around that was so interesting and such an insight. You know, we learned that while our initial concept had revolved around this idea of the user as someone who really was a go-getter and had her life together and went out a lot and knew designer fashion and knew what she wanted from these labels, like the reality of our customer base included that person, but also included someone who did not care about designer labels, like at all, didn't necessarily know them, but just really cared about looking occasion appropriate and looking beautiful and flattered for their own look. And it was so interesting to make sense of that and see like, oh, in hindsight, like that's so obvious. Like, of course, women really want that. And that makes sense that there's a big audience that fits more into that than this other idea of who we had. But it was just something that we learned along the way. It wasn't really something that we had in our heads until we started having a lot of these conversations. Yeah, audience discovery is always a always a fun time. Yeah. So shifting a little bit more into what you're doing today and taking on new challenges, you're the director of user experience advice. So can you start off again by letting us know a little bit more what advice is all about, although I I think most people kind of have an idea, and how you created the opportunity to join the team there? Yeah, definitely. So (laughs) Vice is this like big nebula of content. It's really a blend of hard news and lifestyle stories that are distributed on TV, on the web, on social media, in print, a lot of different facets of where this storytelling lives. So for those who might not know, there's a web experience. So there's vice.com, which is a parent brand. But then there's also a network of about a dozen other websites, including Motherboard, about technology, munchies, about food, noisy, about music, or broadly about women's issues. Then there's Vice News, which has a couple HBO shows. One is every week, and one is a nightly news show. And then that's in addition to their websites and apps. And on top of that, there's Vice Land, which is a cable TV channel. Most of the shows are documentaries, so not scripted, although a couple new scripted shows and more coming up. But these shows touch on things from women's rights around the world to LGBT experiences in different cultures, things about food, travel, a lot of, you know, personal stories, lifestyle stories. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. And and what brought you to, you know, to that opportunity, I guess, to joining the team? Yeah, so my conversation with Vice actually started with a friend of mine who had left her at the runway to join their mobile apps team there. And as I, you know, she reached out to me and I started talking to them about the role and the team and just really saw this huge opportunity to one, build a team from the ground up and two, have this team working on so many different things, including brand new flagship apps, a possible redesign of all the websites. It was just kind of too exciting to pass up. 
Yeah, absolutely. That, that sounds cool. And so, you know, you, you hinted at a few things that you guys have had a chance to have impact on. Um, and you've gone ahead and also blogged on Medium about what some of the process of redesigning Vice from the ground up was like. And, and so we'll link to that so people can kind of dive into it a little bit deeper. But can you give us that, you know, 30,000 foot overview of what redesigning Vice from the ground up for all these different brands that you mentioned, Motherboard, Noisy, Munchies, and, and more? Like, what does that entail? What, what kind of a challenge in terms of scope is that? So we were coming at this redesign from a, our motivation was mainly at the technical level. We knew we needed to bring everything together into one system because before I joined, it had been, you know, 12 different websites with 12 different code bases and different CMSs, different look and feel, and they were not talking to each other. And we said, you know, this isn't going to scale. We have to bring this all into one system. But knowing that our motivation was largely the technology, there were a lot of questions around, you know, what parts of the experience do we keep? What parts do we evolve? Like, what is core to our experience today? What do our users care about? And, you know, there were interesting questions, too, around how the brands fit into the new system. And we spent a lot of time on answering those questions before sort of moving quickly into the execution phase. So I'll give you an example, which is that in thinking about the brands, we were like, okay, we could basically make all of these websites the same, except change out the logo, you know, like the way that Kinja and the, you know, RIP Gawker uh, network of sites has it where it's really just the same structure, the same fonts, the same colors. And all that changes as you navigate through this network is that logo at the top. So as a thought experiment, we put together a range of options from like what we had to start, which was, you know, all these components being quite different, like the headline might be above the image. And then the byline had a circle picture of the author next to it. And we kind of said, like, how much of these differences are really important to these, these sites identities, and ended up landing somewhere in the middle of like, okay, the fonts are important to the identities. The colors are important to the identities. The layout, we're okay with it having the same layout and like the headline always being in the same position and the author's name always being in the same position. So we knew that even though, you know, we hadn't settled on a final version of the designs, we knew that that would be a way that we defined our approach. Really cool. And, and so at, at the same time, you know, as you guys are redefining that look and feel and, and the, the, you know, the tech stack, as you mentioned, Vice also started moving into mobile products. So what was it like sort of extending some of those look and feels and, and, and those designs onto new platforms uh, for the company? What was that process like? Well, actually, we did those projects in reverse. So we created a new mobile app before we did this big web unification, which kind of preempted it in a way. We, we were like, okay, we, need, we want one app, brand advice that includes all of the content from everywhere because we know some of our loyal users come not only to Vice, but they probably check out another one or two of these sites. Like maybe they go to Vice and Motherboard or maybe they go to Vice and Vice News. Like how can all of this content exist in a single app? So with that, we were basically thinking about it's Vice branded and generally the experience is consistent with that Vice brand, but there are also paths into all these other brands that people know and maybe want to go there specifically. That's cool. And, and and so I guess like along some of those lines uh, in terms of 
a moment ago when you were talking about, you know, like the layouts and the looks and feel and, and what belongs to each brand uh, that, that makes it unique, I guess. What are some of the biggest challenges in working on that user experience so that if somebody comes to the Vice app, they, they know that it's one, you know, one big parent company, but then they can go down these paths. Like, how do you create those paths, I guess? That's a really good question. I think, you know, our first version was basically, let's create the most obvious paths. So let's just have one screen that surfaces all of these identities and puts all the sites side by side and lets the user choose between them. And then like slightly less intentional and more discovery-based ways to find those verticals as well. So, you know, feeds that brought all of the content together side by side so that a user might not notice but you know we have our top 10 articles from across the network and the first one might be from vice and the second one might be from munchies and the third one might be from broadly and like you'll get more of a mix just naturally browsing through the main areas of the app but i think it's a question we're still trying to answer it's like how much do we want to keep people in the topics that they care about and give them those quick paths to okay you you love tech like let's bring you into a tech section versus we think that you know there's a reason that you're here and part of that reason you're here is for a vice take on what's important and so we also want to curate things and have a front page and have space for our staff's point of view to be surfaced because we think that's a big part of why people are coming to us is not just to like stay in the echo chamber of what they really think they they know and like already yeah, it's a really interesting challenge to try and undertake and, and solve in an effective way. Um, so, so I mean, obviously, you guys have done a really good job, but I'm, I'm interested in seeing how, you know, it continues to evolve. Yeah, but, we're excited to keep moving on that. Yeah, for sure. So, so as if those two things, you know, weren't enough, what are some of the other project things that you've been involved with um, at Vice over the last few years? The mobile apps, the web unification, those were both big projects. We also created a brand new home for all of the video across the network. So it's called Vice Video, very original naming, but it again is a home for all of the video coming out of each of these different brands. And then to power all of these things, we also designed a new CMS from the ground up, which while decidedly less sexy, you know, it's not a consumer facing product, still a lot of really interesting challenges there, especially for Vice, where we do distribute to, you know, some of our content goes to 30 different countries and 15 different languages. And how do you make sure that there are streamlined workflows for someone to say, translate an article that's published in the US to Greece or Spain or Italy or any of these places that you can read Vice? Wow, that sounds like a crazy challenge to undertake, not only from like a technical perspective, but also the design so that everybody feels like, yeah, I know what I'm doing and I'm able to go in and, you know, write a post and translate it or receive it and post it. It must be really interesting, I guess, to see that side of the operation. Yeah, definitely. So you've talked a lot about some of the different challenges, I guess, like internally and uh, externally for, for users. How do you guys approach distilling the, the, the user research, the user feedback to figure out what's a priority and what's not, especially like, you know, with users who are maybe interested in tech, but you guys are trying to surface more, more information, things that they might like. How do you go about effectively, you know, trying to figure out who all these people are and what they need? I mean, because the audience is so broad, we have our market research that everyone can draw on that kind of gives those demographic trends and interest areas specific to different verticals. I would say on the product level, the biggest, like the most interesting thing that we've done is just get more people watching these 
research sessions of users interacting with the product. So we'll kind of bribe everyone with some popcorn, say on like a Friday afternoon, we'll bring in popcorn and cookies and get people to watch these testing sessions, including our product managers, including our developers. And I think that's helped us to just distribute understanding across our team rather than, you know, in some kind of summary format that says, you know, we found this, people are witness to it themselves. And it becomes a lot more obvious and part of everyone's intuition instead of a specialized report or, or only a couple people's intuition. Really, that's a really cool observation and, and point to make, I think, rather than feeding it to people in a summary, giving them the opportunity to observe it and draw their own conclusions so that, you know, they, they almost discover it themselves. That's really cool. So what's next for, for you and Vice over, you know, the, the coming year? So we've, we've gotten this platform to a good place. Like we've gotten a lot of our products to like a stable, working, functional place. And we're, we're iterating on those things. But I think in the next year, we'll also make some bigger bets and try some things that might be bold and might work or might not, and just be willing to experiment a little more, find things that people are really excited to keep coming back to. So going deeper on things that we know we do well, and just expanding the range of things that people can use to tell a story a little more natively to our platform. Cool. Maybe as a bit of a curveball question uh, on that topic, like as storytelling or the tools, you know, as you just said, the tools that people use to tell stories on your platform, as those continue to evolve or as people explore new ways of telling stories, like how do you design for new new mediums, new platforms, maybe like AR, VR or anything like that? I mean, those platforms, like we've We've experimented a little bit with VR. I think in partnership with Samsung, we made some videos. But I think it will be the stories that drive those experiments. Like we can't, Vice as a company has never let product dictate the kind of content that we make. And so I would, we might figure that out a little bit if we really are excited about a specific platform. But I think we would have to be excited about a specific story or type of story and really feel like that new technology is the best way to tell that story. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. That's really cool. I like how the content drives, you know, the technology and, and the look and feel. And you're sort of like, let's let's see what the story is, and then we'll figure out how we deliver it in the most effective way. That's that's a cool, uh, cool approach. Yeah. Cool. So uh, maybe, you know, just be as a way to wrap up, are there any other like resources that, that you would point uh, other aspiring, you know, product designers or, or just, you know, peer designers or product managers? Is there anything that you've discovered or keep coming back to that you're like, you know, you should go read this uh, because it'll affect, you know, the way you think or the way you do your job? I mean, there are a couple things. One is design ethics, I think, has become a hot topic. Even the past couple weeks with some of the Facebook former executives coming out and making statements, you know, Josh Constein of TechCrunch wrote a long article about passive engagement with social media versus active engagement and how that makes people feel. There's the idea of time well spent that's been circulating. And I think that message is just really important, like with so much of our attention every day spent in engaging with these screens, it's really important that designers and product managers and engineers think about the macro implications of what we are making and how that affects people. So I think, you know, just following a couple of the design ethicists out there has been interesting. And that conversation is, you know, really coming into a focus, which I personally think is great. The other resource is a little more, you know, less less of a hot topic, but you know, designers are so great with tools and learning about new tools and talking about new tools, but I think 
just getting down to most base level communication, like mastery of communication is never going out of style. It's not going to be replaced with the next big thing, like really learning how to understand other people and where they're coming from, whether they're PMs or stakeholders or engineers, is really a skill that everyone should master and invest in improving on. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, on the design uh, ethicist uh, folks, are, is there anybody in particular that you could recommend or places people can go to discover more of that conversation? Tristan Harris writes about time well spent and gave a really great TED talk about it. So I would definitely recommend looking into his blogs and videos and, and everything that he's put together. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure that uh, we link to that. That's that's. I mean, I've seen some of these pieces emerge, but I didn't really know that it was a field or that there was tons of people talking about this. So something uh, I want to rabbit hole myself. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about a bunch of different things throughout the course of the episode. Do you have any final thoughts or words of advice to, to leave us with generally? My, my advice for, you know, anyone trying to get into this space is one, there's a lot of time. This is emerging. Like, I think we get FOMO over seeing people who are already there and feeling like, oh, I'm not there yet. But just building up the things that you actually really care about doing. So if you if you love visual design, spend time on Dribble, post your things on Dribble, engage with that community. If you love UX, you know, try and find a community of people you can talk to in person about your designs. Like maybe understanding where you are in terms of your skill and your interests dictates a little bit of where you can get feedback and where you can find a community and grow your skills. Things like UX boot camps are really great because you chat with people in person and that part is so valuable. And the process is really what's important to that versus a visual design. It's kind of what you see is what you get. So I think just just keep on keeping on, like make more work, talk about it with people, share it with people. That's really how you can grow. And there's, you know, it's easy to just keep finding tools or keep finding things you want to do. But if you don't spend the time actually doing and making, it's really hard to get better. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really key message there, especially at the end. Uh, I really appreciate that, you know, the, the fact that you, you can spend a lot of time discovering things, but you should really focus and, and, you know, put in the time, do the work and that's how you grow. So that, that's really cool. Jess, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story and insights with us. Really appreciated having you on the show today. Yeah, thank you. This is fun. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share it with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us an email, hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.